0: Our confessional reading is Lord's Day 22. That Lord's Day reads as follows What comfort does the resurrection of the body offer you? Not only shall my soul after this life immediately be taken up to Christ my head, but also this my flesh raised by the power of Christ shall be reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. What comfort do you receive from the article about the life everlasting? Since I now already feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, I shall after this life possess perfect blessedness such as no eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man conceived a blessedness in which to praise God forever. After the sermon, we'll sing in response, hymn 68, stanzas 5, 6, and 7. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we believe the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Perhaps you've wondered before, I can see why God would resurrect his own children, but why do the unbelievers and the godless have to be raised from the dead? For at least two reasons. In the first place, because every human being is answerable to Christ. Everyone must appear before his judgment seat to receive good or evil according to what he has done in the body. And in the second place, just as the believer is rewarded with the glory of heaven in body and soul, so also the unbeliever is punished with the torment of hell in body and soul. That teaching alerts us to the fact that we cannot live as we want, gratifying the desires of our flesh. Our bodily functions, what we do with our eyes, our hands, our feet, our heart, are placed in the perspective of the great day of judgment. And we teach our children that at a young age with the song, O oh, be careful little eyes what you see, for the Father up above is looking down in love. This afternoon we want to listen to what the Bible reveals about the resurrection of the dead from 1 Corinthians 15. In the church of Corinth, as you know, there were a number of things in confession and conduct that were not in order. Not that we're surprised by that. As long as the church is composed of sinful saints, there will be struggles. Besides, it was a young church. Its members had just been converted from heathendom to Christ. Their pagan beliefs about the life hereafter still influenced their thinking. In their estimation, there would be no resurrection of the body when Christ came back. What kind of body would that be anyway? Does our body not restrict us in many ways today? The freedom of the soul from the body, that would be the ultimate experience after death paul carefully leads them in the way of the truth no he he doesn't act as if everything about the resurrection can be logically understood instead he calls it a mystery in verse 51 what god revealed about it goes beyond our minds it's unimaginable for us But that's not the only point of our religion that we can't fathom. What about creation or the coming of Christ into the flesh or our conversion? Christian faith is a series of wonders, one after the other. And the same with the resurrection of the body. We can only grasp this divine truth in faith. Notice that Paul in this chapter does not explain how God is going to accomplish it. Nevertheless, out of faith, we may raise the question of amazement. What sort of body will we receive on the youngest day? We want to look at the answer Paul gives in the verses 51 through 54. And so I proclaim to you the Word of God under this theme. Paul rejoices in the mystery that believers will be changed, made like Christ's glorious body. And we'll see four things, the totality, the time, the necessity, and the certainty of this change. When Christ comes back, says the Apostle, we shall all be changed The word all receives the emphasis in the original. It's placed up front. All shall not sleep, but all shall be changed. The subject is the believers, the congregation of Christ at Corinth, with whom Paul includes himself, but not only them. Through this letter, the Holy Spirit addresses the church today. You and I, every single one of us, will be changed. We shall not all sleep. Sleeping, as you know, is a common biblical term for describing death. You find it throughout the Old Testament. Think only of the book of Kings. After the reign of every king, the author concludes, so-and-so slept with his fathers and was buried with him in the city of David. Paul is not of the opinion, as some have said, that the Christians of his time will live to see the day of Christ's return. Not at all. His starting point is that there will be some who have fallen asleep. He acknowledges that, for example, in verse 18. There he points out that if Christ had not been raised, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So Paul is not writing under any disillusionment when he says, we shall not all sleep. He's simply saying that when Christ returns, there will be Christians alive. Suffering and persecution of the last days will be great, but God will preserve his own. We will be changed. What is perishable will become imperishable. Man with his mortal, sinful body would be completely out of harmony in the new heaven and the new earth. In our bodies and in the body of Christ the church, there's so much that reminds us of the misery of sin. Weakness, brokenness, pain, and ultimately death. But when Christ appears on the clouds of heaven, all that will be removed. Then everything will be perfect and pure, full of harmony and love and peace. How that will happen, we don't know. It remains a mystery. Earlier on in this chapter, Paul compared burial to sowing. Verse 42, what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. A beautiful and comforting analogy. Standing around a grave doesn't mean this is the end. No, we sow the body in the earth like a planting a seed. Yes, it remains hidden for a while, but eventually it germinates, sprouts forth and bears fruit. Sowing leads to harvesting, to gathering in the golden grain. Well, the same perspective is there at a cemetery. We sow a weak, dishonorable, physical body into the earth. But Christ on the last day will harvest a body that is powerful, glorious, and spiritual. And it's not for us to question how can Christ do that Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Dust we are, and to dust we shall return. But he who formed us from the dust of the earth is able to reform us. No, not into a totally different individual. The Catechism in answer 57 says, This my flesh shall be raised by the power of Christ. This my flesh. My own body. And that's based on verse 52, where Paul emphatically states this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. Each of us has his own body uniquely fitted with his soul, life, spirit, and character. The Lord's not going to fit me with someone else's body at the resurrection. Being a blue-eyed person born of Dutch parents, I will not be raised a Negro or a Korean. The same variety and differences which testify of God's majestic power and wisdom today will also be there in the New Jerusalem. The body that's mine now I'm going to receive back. But then made like Christ's glorious body. All of us will be changed, living and the dead. Some of God's children have to go through this life with diseases, ailments, deformities from birth, genetic disorders, mental or physical handicaps, allergies, What a world of suffering there is in bodily pain. Trials of this nature can sometimes make it difficult even to continue in faith, especially when we see others who don't seem to have a health worry in the world. They're strong and vibrant, filled with vitality and life. Nevertheless, we have a consolation, a hope, of glory. Keep your ear tuned to the music of the gospel. We shall all be changed. No one will be left out. And we can rest assured that no sickness or syndrome or handicap or deficiency is beyond the healing and renewing power of our Lord Jesus Christ. He demonstrated that power already during His earthly ministry. healed thousands of people of every imaginable disease and defect. From blindness to paralysis to death even. Think of Lazarus of whom the Lord said, he's sleeping. He spoke the word of life at his tomb, and that dead man walked out of the tomb. We all have a mortal body. Some of us may enjoy the blessing of strength and health right now, but there comes a time when we too will experience weakness and decay, As God permits us to grow old, the body body begins to feel the effects of time. We become more susceptible to colds and viruses. Our eyes grow dim. Our hearing diminishes. Our teeth fall out. Our hearts become weak. Our hands begin to shake and our feet drag. Our body falls apart like some old dilapidated house. The Old Testament, as you know, refers to our bodies as a tent. In the end, the pegs are pulled up and the whole structure collapses in a heap to the ground. And so we need to cling to Jesus Christ. For by His resurrection, He has overcome death, not only for Himself, but for all who believe in Him. That one man risen from the grave is like a solitary sheaf of grain, the first fruit who prophesies of and guarantees many more. A gathered harvest that will fill the barns of the divine owner. Christ has conquered death and sat down at the right hand of the owner in heaven. And in his position of all authority and power, he's active. What he began with his own resurrection, he's working intensely at bringing to completion. The earthquake at Easter will be followed by an earthquake at the end of time which will break open every tomb and the harvest of his angels will begin. The life he earned by his obedience and death will be shared and enjoyed to the full by all those whom the Father has given him. Which brings us to the second point, the time of this change. This change worked in the believers, whether living or dead at Christ's return, was not something that God added to his plan after Adam fell into sin. Our first parents were created in true righteousness and holiness, but they were also flesh and blood. They weren't created immortal. There was a possibility of sinning and dying. So they too had to be changed to the immortality of the coming age. But sadly, through the fall, the possibility of sin became reality. That's why flesh and blood, those terms now describe man as sinful and corrupt, hostile toward God. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, Paul says in verse 50. Nevertheless, despite the fall into sin, God didn't depart from his plan. Through His exalted Son, He's leading all things to a glory even more resplendent than that of paradise. When will that happen? At the last trumpet, writes Paul, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. That description calls to mind God's descent on Mount Sinai, doesn't it? When Israel was assembled around the mountain, they heard something similar. We read in Exodus 19, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And as the sound of the blast grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. At that blast of the trumpet, God drew near and established His covenant with Israel as a nation. And later, when Israel had circled Jericho seven times on the seventh day, they were told to blow the trumpet. And at that sound, the Lord drew near and demolished the walls of Jericho. The sound of the trumpet, that's the sound of the approach of God a drawing near to His people in salvation, a drawing near to His enemies for destruction. Jesus also spoke about that musical instrument in connection with the signal which would gather together the elect from the four corners of the earth. Trumpets, as you know, also figure prominently in the last book of the Bible in connection with the divine judgments over the world. But Paul speaks about the last trumpet. When it's blown, the dead will rise. And there will be no gradual change, no slow development of the believers. Once the trumpet of God has sounded, it will be sudden, instantaneous, in a moment, says Paul at the final appearance of the Lord Christ in glory, the transformation of his bride will be immediate. The word that Paul uses for moment in Greek is the one from which our English word atomic is derived. An atom is a tiny basic unit of matter. Something so small that at least until quite recently was deemed to be uncuttable it couldn't be divided and that's what this word literally means indivisible the change will come about so quickly that no one will notice any cut or division any delay in time in a flash will all be changed in much the same way that This world came into existence. God spoke and it came to be. In order to underline that it will be sudden, Paul adds another clarifying phrase, in the twinkling of an eye, there will be that mighty sound and before you can bat an eyelid, the dead will be raised imperishable and we will all be changed. Those who are living will be astonished, to say the least. The one moment weak, the next strong, the one moment sick, the next healthy. Simultaneously with the sound of God's trumpet, the deaf will hear, the blind will see, the lame will walk. What the most learned doctors and specialists and virologists have spent all their life and resources trying to find cures for, Will be gone in a split second, changed eternally by Him who is the Prince of Life. Simply staggers the imagination, doesn't it? The blink of an eye, the graves will be opened, the dead raised, and millions of God's children from all times and places standing before Him, perfected and pure through the life giving Spirit. Adam and Eve, Abram and Sarah, Moses, Samuel, David, all God's saints from the Old and New Covenant. What a future awaits us and them. Do our hearts burn with eager anticipation for the fulfillment of that promise? Do we pray fervently with the Spirit, and the Bride. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We have to examine ourselves on that point. Are we feeling just fine and dandy in this present body of death? Is our heart captivated perhaps by earthly things? That can happen, especially in a time of affluence and peace as we enjoy by the grace of God today. What is it that the persecuted church sang during the 16th century? You find it in the closing words of the Belgic Confession. We look forward to the day of the Lord with great longing to enjoy to the full the promises of God in Jesus Christ. With great longing How great, how intense is that longing among us? The resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. That's your hope, brothers and sisters. God has placed you on the way to that magnificent day. When it will dawn, at what hour the trumpet will sound, we don't know. God in His wisdom has withheld that from us. He wants us to wait patiently, to trust in his promise to hold fast the hope of glory. Yes, also when we bring a loved one to the grave, then we don't merely entrust him or her into the never-satisfied womb of the earth. No, we entrust them into the loving care of our Saviour. We look in faith beyond the darkness of the grave, beyond that gaping hole toward the brilliance of our Lord, our Lord, who is coming back surrounded by all the holy angels. Death is an enemy. It's natural that we resist him that we cling to life, to this life, as long as possible? That you think of your own death isn't morbid or wrong. Doesn't the preacher say that death is the end of all men and the living will lay it to heart? As you ponder about death... You can do so strengthened by Paul's word. We shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the sound of the trumpet. Death doesn't have the last word. Christ does. Our life, our future, our inheritance is secure. And it's not like christ doesn't have it in order yet no it's a reality today it's awaiting us in heaven and at the moment of god's good pleasure it will break forth into this life like the sun bursting through a dark cloud and god will be everything to everyone we shall be changed it will take place according to god's schedule Yet Paul is even more emphatic. He also talks about the necessity of this change, the third point. You find that, brothers and sisters, in verse 53. There Paul writes, For this perishable nature must put on the imperishable, and this mortal nature must put on the immortality. This change has to happen. Why? Because what is perishable and mortal cannot enter the presence of God in the new earth. God is imperishable and eternal. Life and death are opposed to each other, and so God will not, He cannot tolerate anything that is subject to death and decay. Israel knew that. In the regulations concerning the Nazarite, for example, God declared, All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. All the days of his separation. He is holy to the Lord. Death is the wages of sin. And God is a God who cannot even look on sin. Nor coexist with its terrible consequences. He's a God of holiness. A God who dwells in unapproachable light. He's the fountain of life. That's why this perishable nature must put on the imperishable. Paul uses the imagery of clothing, of being dressed in new garments, and yet You shouldn't draw the wrong conclusion that this change will only be an external one, as if under the priestly robes of salvation and holiness we'll still have a weak and sinful body. Not at all. Nothing that is weak and perishable and mortal may appear before God in Zion. Maybe the thought entered your mind, but but how can we put on the imperishable? We don't have to. Christ will do that for us. And you could say that He's already started that now for physical death is the result of spiritual death, of breaking away from God. The cause of death is sin. We read it together. The sting with which death inflicts wounds, with which it poisons us, is sin. Death maintains itself if you will in sin whoever sins dies and experiences the power of death but thanks be to christ who delivered us from all our sins he was unstained by it at birth because he was conceived by the holy spirit and all his life, God's law was engraved on his heart. He desired to do nothing else but God's will. Loving God and his neighbor as himself, even up to his death on the cross. Yes, he had to endure the suffering of death. But because of his obedience, death couldn't hang on to him. Dying, he defeated death. And he delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong bondage. Well, that victory is ours through faith in him. We are therefore called to embrace him as the one who made full atonement for us, to believe that He has inherited the new world for us, that God's countenance shines on us in grace and mercy. Through faith in Him, we, with our perishable and mortal nature, are righteous before God. Our Redeemer and Mediator is the one who holds in His hands the keys of death and Hades. He rules. Over the living and the dead. Union with Christ through faith. Is necessary for receiving life from him. Life which gradually conquers the death of sin now. And will triumph over bodily death in the resurrection. Now having said that you can tell. That the catechism isn't following a chronological order. When it puts the life everlasting after the resurrection of the body. We confess in Lord's Day 38 that we begin in this life, the eternal Sabbath. What we will enjoy in the heavenly Canaan in full, we enjoy now in principle. Truly, truly I say to you, Jesus taught, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And it's in the light of that glad tiding, that Lord's Day 16, for example, calls our death a passageway into life eternal. What a comfort for us if we suffer from a debilitating sickness. What a comfort when, when we gather at a cemetery to bury a loved one. I believe the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, that hope softens all our sorrow and it gives us the courage to continue with our daily calling paul doesn't allow this loftiest hope to cancel out the lowliest duty that's why he ends this chapter with the exhortation therefore my beloved brothers be steadfast immovable always abounding in the work of the lord we live and labor in the light of Easter. So if God gives us sickness, if God takes away one of our children, siblings, or friends, each day is still full of meaning because all our work in the Lord bears fruit and it will follow us into the kingdom of our Father. What a day that will be And we can be 100% assured of it. Which brings us briefly to the last point. The certainty of our change. Our text concludes, Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Swallowed up. You have the picture of something that's completely destroyed and removed. Not a trace of it left anymore. Like some ravenous beast that wolfs down its prey so death will be completely vanquished when the lord returns not only will it have no influence it will cease to exist for god's people and that total victory was foretold already by the prophet isaiah whom paul quotes prophesying about the restoration of all things, about the salvation of the end, Isaiah says, the Lord will swallow up death forever. Death will be thoroughly and radically abolished. As John writes in the second last chapter of the Bible, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with men and death shall be no more centuries ago god made the promise on easter morning the promise was fulfilled in principle and on the last day it will be definitively and ultimately fulfilled then shall come to pass the saying that's written death has been swallowed up in victory and bear in mind This is a saying of God. He spoke it through Isaiah. Therein lies the certainty of fulfillment. We will all be changed because God cannot lie. Not one of His words ever falls idly to the ground. Those who trust in this word of promise and restoration will not be put to shame on the day of days they will say behold this is our god we have waited for him that he might save us this is the lord let us be glad and rejoice in him amen